folks, this is Joe Zagorski from the podcast Pro Football in the 1970s. It's a part of the Sports History Network, and you are listening to the Total Sports Recall Podcast. Now here is your host, Harv Aronson. Harv Aronson, and for this episode, I bring in an old friend, a classmate from my alma mater, Slippery Rock University of Pennsylvania, which was known as Slippery Rock State College when I was a student from 1977 to 1982. Our guest today was my sports editor when I was a writer for the school paper, The Rocket. He also spent time working with a college radio station where, too, I was a disc jockey and a sports announcer, WRCK, at that time. Chuck DeCaro is our guest, and aside from a few phone calls recently, this will be the first full sports conversation Chuck and I have had in over 40 years. Before we bring Chuck in, a little background information on our guest. Chuck DeCarbo, like myself, hails from the great city of Pittsburgh as he grew up in Newcastle in the Berg and then graduated from Stowe High School in Ohio. Chuck is a sports fanatic who is a lifelong fan of the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Pirates, and the Steelers. Chuck has traveled well over the last 40 years, having lived in eight different states. As Chuck and I were sports writers at Slippery Rock, he continued to write about sports in Texas and in New York City. Chuck has spent many years as an umpire in five sports, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, and softball, and as an assigner, which he continues to do today. Chuck also started his own apparel and equipment company called The Sports Loft, established in 2004. In 2021, Chuck sold the rights to his business, but remains a sales associate for the company. The Sports Loft sells officiating apparel and equipment. In addition to all that, that has been mentioned thus far. Chuck DeCaro is also a partner for the East Coast Umpires Association, now 20 years going strong. On a personal level, Chuck currently resides in Sunset, South Carolina, with his wife, Beth, and their dog, Biscuit, and their two cats, Butters and Jam. Welcome to the Total Sports Recall Podcast, Chuck. It's been a lengthy period since we last saw each other and had a good conversation on sports. Glad to be here, Harv. Great seeing you and great talking sports. Can I just toss something in? Do you know what happened 51 years ago today? <clears throat> I know it was the Immaculate Reception. Last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Cato. Tipped off. Rachel Harris has it. And he's over. Do you remember oh. that well? Oh, of course. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Let's talk about that for a second. Because, for one, back then, as you well quite remember, and I've told this story so many times, they had the blackout rule in the NFL. And therefore, if your home team had a game that was not sold out, the game was not uh, permitted to be broadcast on television. Therefore, I had to listen to that game on the radio, and I clearly remember 12 years old, sitting in my driveway, listening to the radio. Uh, my father was fortunate enough to be at the game, but you know, on this, on this show, I had Terry Hanratty earlier this year, and I asked him about the Immaculate Reception, um, and he said he was you know, right there watching it, um, so he was on the field. He got a firsthand experience about that, and for people that I've, I've said this before, people that don't know um, Art Rooney never saw the play because he thought the game was over and it was on his way into the locker room to congratulate his players on a, a great season. So I saw that also on Twitter today. It's all over Twitter today. Everybody's showing it. Uh, what a great moment in, in Pittsburgh Steelers history. It certainly was. And I remember I was downstairs in my basement in Newcastle and when I just went absolutely bonkers, like bouncing off walls, telling my parents, you know, 
Santa Claus came early and all that stuff. And I kind of think, you know, obviously Mazeroski, probably a bigger moment, but sure. for the Steelers and their future, oh my gosh, it was just, just absolutely. I mean, when you're that age, that means so much to you, you know? Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. oh my, I just remember, I couldn't wait to pick up the phone and, you know, call all my friends at the time and what I'd been in probably sixth grade, seventh grade, whatever. Yeah. Uh, wonderful Pittsburgh moments. Yeah. And that's what really spawned my interest in football. Um, I had already been a sports fan um, for about a year because uh, Roberto Clemente's home run in the seventh game of the 1971 World Series is what really sparked my interest in sports. Um, he instantly became my hero. Um, and then I became a sports fan after that. But uh, the funny story about the Immaculate Reception is apparently with my father at the game, what he was telling me was everybody thought the game was over at that point and some guy was eating food in front of him. And when Franco picked up the ball, this guy just tossed all his food in the air and it went over everybody. And so he said the stadium just went absolutely nuts. Um, and as you can see on the replay, it was. And of course, Mitch and I talked about this last week and he happens to be a Raiders fan from Pittsburgh. So go figure. But uh, he grew up oh. in Erie, and he became a Raiders fan because he said everybody up there was either cheering for the Raiders or uh, I think he said the Browns. But, you know, there was more of those fans than there were Steelers fans. But I asked him, I said, so was it a legitimate catch or not? And he goes, well, you know what I'm going to say. Uh, and, and John Madden apparently took that to his grave saying that they were ripped off that day. But who knows? And then, of course, there's the Frenchie Fuqua story that uh, he will not reveal what actually happened. And. Apparently he goes and does speeches and he leads people up to believe he's going to tell them what actually took place. And then he says, well, I really don't know. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. <laughs> he's a character. I'll say that about yeah. Frenchie. I've never had the opportunity to meet him during my sports mm-hmm. writing days, but uh, everyone that I've asked about said he was a character and can tell a story with the best of them. Yeah. And he, he had the, the high heels with the fish in him. Remember that? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> People won't understand that unless they're from our era. What no, they won't. So let's begin our talk with uh, Slippery Rock State College, not Slippery Rock University. As I mentioned, you were my sports editor, but what was your writing experience prior to college and what inspired you, Chuck, to be a sports writer? You know, Harv, I really did not enjoy writing at all in high school. That was probably the one class I wasn't very good at it. And I had this teacher, Mrs. Jensen, who was so passionate about writing. And I just, you know, I cared about sports. I love math. And I remember in 1978, we had a blizzard and I went to a a KISS concert at the Richfield Coliseum. And I mean, six of us in the car, we had to push the car. We got stuck in snow. And the next day I wrote a story about, I called it KISS Crazy, starting crazy with the letter K and turned it into Mrs. Jensen's class. And it was the first and only A I got in writing. (laughs) And I thought, wow, if you're passionate about something, you put forth a little more effort. Well, then fast forward to The Rock. And my dream growing up in Western Pennsylvania is I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. And like most, I wasn't good enough. And I said, second best thing would be to be a beat writer covering a Major League Baseball team. So I, I believe I was the first person at The Rock according to my uh, advisor, Cheryl Levitt, that went through the sports communication track of physical education. And then I Mm. minored in journalism Mm. and I just 
started writing my junior year. Steve McCullough was our sports editor and he was from Newcastle, really nice guy. And he just kind of took me under his wing and, you know, assigned me a couple sports. And I thought you could get paid to go watch a sporting event. This isn't work. And then he kind of said, listen, I would like you to consider being the sports editor next year. And uh, I think you, you have a little talent and obviously you have a passion for it. So that's kind of what I did. And I said, this is definitely what I wanted to do. And guys like yourself who wrote for me, uh, it was just, you know, of course, everyone you romant, it's romanticized a little bit about your college days, but mm-hmm. they were really among the best days of my life. And I mean, you have to admit, we had a lot of fun in that little office, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, <clears throat> I'm I'm with you that I had such a great time at Slippery Rock. Um, we had so much fun there, not just between the radio and the newspaper and all the intramural events. I used to play intramural softball for the radio station. We had a lot of fun there, and uh, yeah, and we uh, got to go to Ann Arbor. Remember, we got to go to the yeah, big house. Or I was gonna, got- I was gonna bring that up. We actually went twice because <laughs> Tim McCoy and I. The first time I went as a student. And I'll never forget it because everybody was partying their asses off. And, uh, you know, I, I was up all night. I don't think I slept that night. The next day I went to the game and it was hot out. And I think I almost passed out <laughs> being hung over and, and going to this game. And uh, I think Rick Porter was actually playing for that team. Um, and it was about 1981, I think. And then yes. the next time they went, uh, we're playing Wayne State. And this time... Um, I was, Tim was my sports director at WRCK and we went up and actually did the broadcast, uh, for WRCK from the big house. Uh, and one thing I say about that stadium, Chuck was crazy is that when you go to that stadium, most stadiums, you walk into the main gates and then you'll walk up to your seat, wherever you're at. Um, or you might, uh, be on the field level when you first walk in, you walk into the university of Michigan stadium and you are at the top of the stadium. So when I walked in, I'm expecting to look up and I'm like, holy crap. It's like a big hole in the ground. That stadium is tremendous. It uh, is. And I believe we had about 60,000 people for that first game, that second game, what we broadcast and the place looked empty. So that tells you how big that stadium is. But, you know, they treated us so well. They put us in their broadcast booth and they had little headphones like that I've got on now that would spit out the uh, stats as you go along through the game so you can keep up to date with who's doing what. Um, It was so professional. It was a really great experience. Total Sports Recall is sponsored by Mira Artistry, where you can purchase beautiful fine art photography and abstract art. Contact Mira Artistry in regards to commissions and availability of the pieces on her site. She would like to create something special for you. For the photography and art lovers in your life, Mirror Artistry has the perfect gifts for you. Visit Mirror Artistry at www.miraartistry.com. That's M-E-R-A-A-R-T-I-S-T-R-Y.com. Miraartistry.com. Anyway, Chuck, so you've indicated you were a sports writer in Texas and for the New York Newsday. Uh, which paper did you enjoy writing for the most and what kind of sports did you write about? Uh, here's an interesting. When I started in little Alvin, Texas, it was the hometown of Nolan Ryan and he was pitching for the Astros mm-hmm. at the time. And the very first day on my job, August 23rd, 1982, my editor and publisher ran or slid a piece of paper on my desk and on it was 
Nolan Ryan's quote unquote, as he said, personal phone number. This is before wow. cell phones. And he said, call him up. He's going to invite you over for dinner. He's expecting your call. And I remember no I did and went over for dinner. But I remember I, after I called him, I picked up the phone and I called my dad. And I said, Dad, I don't make much money, but I'm going to Nolan Ryan's house tonight. Wow. Oh, to meet him crazy. for dinner. And he was just the nicest guy. It was kind of typical out of college. First job, one person sports department. So you took some photos. You wrote about every sport. Um, but very enjoyable and a great learning experience and kind of learned a little bit about Texas mm -hmm. and a couple of years later moved down to Galveston and interesting fact there, I was there a couple of years, but I believe it was the 1985 high school football season. Galveston ball was the public school. They had five players on that team, five that were either a number one draft pick or an all pro and they did not get out of the quarterfinals of the state playoffs. That's wow. how good high school football was in Texas. And I look back, and they had Kimball Anders, and they had mm -hmm. uh, Eric Hill. They had Todd Scott. They had all these mm -hmm. terrific athletes. And I realized how good high school football really was. And then I moved down to Corpus Christi, and I really enjoyed my time there. It's where I met my wife, Beth. She was a mm -hmm. copy editor on the news desk. Mm -hmm. And... They had terrific athletes there. Um, Carl Greenwood was a really good high school football player and track athlete and ended up playing for the New York Jets. And when we moved to New York, my best man was my sports editor. He kind of followed us up to New York, and he was the beat writer for the Jets for Newsday at the time. And he invited right. us over to their house, and Carl mm -hmm. Greenwood was there. And he's like, I remember you, Chuck. Wow. Yeah, I remember you. So that was a lot of fun. And again, you know, you get to interview the guys that we kind of idolize as athletes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I say, you know, they're paying me to do this. I, I'm not working. I'm just living the dream. Yeah, that's awesome being at Nolan Ryan's house. My God, you're talking about one of the greatest pitchers ever. Um, I've written articles about him in the past here. And just uh, um, it, it, you can't wrap your head around the fact that he had seven no-hitters. That, that's something nobody's ever going to touch. I mean, there is no. no way anybody's ever thrown seven no hitters again in, in our lifetime or in the next lifetime. Um, so that, that that had to be special for you to to meet him. Uh, I mean, God, that's crazy. And he couldn't harp. He couldn't have been nicer. I, I yeah. He would in, when we were eating dinner. He said that uh, you know I'm not the best athlete in the house, and he pointed at his wife Ruth. Yeah. She was a quite accomplished athlete. And really? one of my story ideas I had for the editor and publisher, I said, listen, mm -hmm. I was a decent baseball player. I would love to put on catcher's gear and catch Nolan Ryan and write a oh, column. Oh, no way. And he goes, you couldn't catch him. And I said, if I couldn't, it'd be even a better column, but I'd like yeah. to do it. And insurance reasons, the liability, they wouldn't let me do that. But I always oh, no. felt like I missed out on that opportunity. And But I always kind of thought that way. When I got down to Corpus Christi, I posed mm -hmm. a question to my sports editor and I said, I want to go try out. Major League Baseball is having a tryout camp at Cabinus wow. Field, which is kind of a home facility for all Corpus Christi public school baseball games. I wanted to go undercover, try out, and then interview the people and see what they're really looking for. And I did it. And of course, every you know kid, they, they moved all the infielders. If you could go there and say, I'm a second baseman, they put you way behind third base and they make you throw the ball to first. And a lot of these kids, 
they couldn't get the ball there. And they said, well, I'm a second wow. baseman. They said, well, son, to be a major leaguer, you need to have an arm like this. Mm-hmm. And then they do sprints and everything. But mm-hmm. it was fascinating. I hopped in the limo and I went back to the airport with the guys and kind of asked them what they were looking for. And I don't know, maybe there were 200 kids that showed up that day. And I said, any potentials? And they said, one kid will kind of keep an eye on only because he's 16. And we sense that he has good bloodlines. He might be able to grow into a player, but mm-hmm. I kind of learned what they look for and made me realize what I knew years before, how hard it is to become a major league oh, baseball yeah. player. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. There's not a whole lot of players in the league. So of the millions of people that play baseball, it's gotta be tough. Did you make that throw? Uh, I did not because I went there and said I was going to be a pitcher. And oh, okay. once they kind of did our, um, we did some sprints first. And of course I got absolutely dusted by some young kids <laughs> and they, they get used that convenient. Hey, yeah, we're running a little low on time. They saw the people they wanted to see pitch. Yeah. And I mean, you got maybe 10 pitches and it was interesting. A lot of the guys said, well, I'm not really a good position player, but I could hit. And they said, we have a, we have enough designated hitters. We yeah. need people that can play a position or, mm-hmm. you know, throw 90 miles an hour. So sure. real, it was, it was a great learning experience. Yeah. Uh, so Nolan didn't ask you just to, to throw a ball around a little bit when you were at his house. No, I would have. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Harv, I would have absolutely loved that. And his two kids at the time, Reed and Reese turned out to be, executives i think they both played at the university of texas mm-hmm. and uh they ended up being executives in the major league baseball um they were you know i had them when they were about in the little league so they were cute little kids but everyone when they'd watch the games and i'd cover little league because i was you know one person show there that they'd always you think he'll be as good as his dad or he'll, you know <laughs> you know will he be a pitcher or this or that and um just a great family though i had nothing but great things to say about yeah. them do you uh, still have that article that you wrote about those tryouts? Uh, you know, I bet it's somewhere in the file. Well, uh, if you can find it, I'd, like to, I'd love to corpus. see it. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Um, yeah, if I can dig it up, I'll send it to you. What you remind me of, you saying you wanted to try out, reminds me of, um, his name slips in my mind, but I know you'll probably know, you'll be helping me out with it, but the paper lion, or the guy wrote the paper lion. Oh, George Plimpton. George Plimpton, yeah, he sounded, he reminded me a little bit about him because he tried out for football. I believe he actually boxed Sugar Ray Robinson. Um, he tried different sports as a writer just to he experience did. it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that instantly made me made me think of that. Uh, well, I've lived in four different states, Chuck. Uh, you've doubled that number with eight. So, what are the eight states you lived in, and what were the reasons for you moving around so much? Uh, my dad got transferred a little bit when I was a kid. So I grew up in Newcastle, moved over the border to Ohio to Austin town, uh, for a couple years, I think kindergarten and first grade, moved back to our hometown. Yeah. got transferred again and then moved back to Northeast Ohio, start of eighth grade. And then moved back to Western Pennsylvania for college, moved to Texas for, to start my sports writing career. And then we moved to New York. Um, Beth landed a job at Newsday and then we moved down to, or while I was in college, I should say, my parents also moved to, uh, New Hampshire, Londonderry, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and then Fort Wayne, Indiana. So briefly I was at those when I was at the rock and then wow. we went to New York and then we moved to Atlanta 
for a year. Uh, my wife worked at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution mm-hmm. as a features editor. Mm-hmm. And then we moved back to New York where she went to work for the Wall Street Journal. And now we're in South Carolina. So some of those states I've been in multiple times. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a lot of moving around. So was your father a sports fan? Obviously, you must have been. Uh, not really. That's what really? everyone would ask me. And Interesting. My dad wasn't a big sports fan. My mother wow. definitely wasn't. And I remember uh, my uncle Ted passed away oh, probably 15 years ago. But we would always gather his two daughters. My cousins were, I think, born about two weeks apart in January. So we'd always have birthday parties for all the cousins. And their birthday party almost always fell when the Super Bowl was being played huh. or a very important uh, playoff game. And we'd be there and I felt bad for them because everyone, all the, all the uncles and male cousins, we'd be hovered around the TV watching the game mm-hmm. and everyone else would be, you know, elsewhere. And I remember we'd be watching the game and you'd see a play go and I'm, you know, young, eight, nine, 10 years old. I'd see a play go and I go, that was a clip. And then pause for a few <laughs> seconds a flag is thrown and then the referee comes on and say, clipping number 89. And my oh, uncles wow. would look at me and like, how did you know that? And, and I couldn't <laughs> explain it, but it was just the yeah. one language uh-huh. I have understood my entire life was sports and little did I know back then, but I would turn out to be an official in many sports and I was a referee in football. So I was the one who had the microphone on and had to tell the audience mm-hmm. we had clipping on, you know, number 89. That's a 15 yard penalty from the spot of the foul. We're going to replay second down. And it's just, and that was the best seat in the house, even better than a sports writer. Wow. Yeah. My father was a sports fan. So I got it from him and um, he was a, a big time golfer when he was alive and he was a bowler. But I remember him telling me that when he was a kid, he was at the final game Babe Ruth played in Pittsburgh. So he actually got to see Babe Ruth play. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that was very cool story that he told me. Um, But (laughs) we're going to get off topic here for a little bit because I have another funny story I got to tell. And okay. I can't wait to hear it. Oh yeah. So being from Pittsburgh yourself, uh, my father uh, was a dentist for years, uh, but he had some neck issues. So he was in um, his bank with this neck brace around his neck. And a friend of his was in front of him and says, hey, Doc, what'd you do to your neck? He goes, oh, man, I was wrestling Bruno San Martino and he hurt my neck. <laughs> well, he turns around and Bruno San Martino is standing right behind him, heard the whole thing. Um, and he said, my father's all red faced. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, Bruno says, I never hurt a man in my life. <laughs> oh my gosh. Very funny. So yeah, that's my point. And uh, I don't know if you remember, um, Baron Cicluna, the wrestler from Pittsburgh. Oh yes. Yeah. He was my father's patient. My, he was, my father was his dentist. So <laughs> very okay. cool off topic story. Uh, so you mentioned from, you're from Newcastle but you graduated from Stowe High School in Ohio. So we already talked a little bit about this, but your family obviously moved from Pennsylvania to Ohio. You had mentioned that before. A couple times, yep. Yeah, yeah we got yeah. my dad transferred in. Right. So when I was in Newcastle, um, I remember going, it was close to before, I, I would have gone to Neshanik High School as opposed to Newcastle. Mm-hmm. I was in a suburb, and my dad and I, he used to take me to Newcastle football games. And again, he wasn't a big sports fan. He loved to golf, 
but he wasn't a sports fan. And he would take mm-hmm. me and my cousin Steve to the games. And we saw Tony Dorsett play. I mean, Newcastle oh, was wow. a really good high school yep. football team. Mm-hmm. We saw Dorsett play. And um, when I moved to Stowe, I said, you know, what am I going to do to supplement this? I'm eighth grade. And then people said, well, you know, Larry Zonka went to Stowe High School. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. So then I had to look up history wow. of Larry Zonka. And I said, well, I I'm not a Dolphins fan. I'm a Steelers fan. They go, well, you're in Brown's country now. I said, it doesn't <laughs> matter. I'm a Steelers fan. And, of course, yeah. I moved there in 73. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the start of the dynasty. Mm-hmm. And then I lived there for two of the Super Bowl, first two Super Bowl championships. And then when we went to the Rock, I mean, Harv, what was better then 79 at the Rock, the Steelers and the Pirates both mm-hmm. win world championships. And yep. we're there. We went mm-hmm. to uh, we went to game three, the clinching game against the Reds mm-hmm. um, for the Buccos. And then we went to one of the World Series games. Mm-hmm. I still have my ticket. You know what a World Series ticket cost in 1979? Take a oh, shot at it. I, I was there. I went to all three games. I don't remember what I paid, though. Um, Ten bucks. Yeah, Ten it was bucks. cheap. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, uh, that's crazy, isn't it? Um, when I was at Slippery Rock from '77 to '78, took a year off, went back to school. But in the year I went off, I was off. Uh, I made it a point that summer in '78 to go to as many Pirate games as I could. And back then, Three River Stadium, you could get an upper deck seat for a dollar. Oh my gosh! Uh, so I was going crazy going to games. <laughs> I think I went to. I remember correctly, I went to about thirty-five games that summer. That was just going all the time. Uh, it was so cheap. It was so easy to go. And back then, unlike today, um, in Three River Stadium, you could go sit in the upper deck, but you were allowed to go from section to section. They didn't have any security guards or okay. anybody else that would stop you. You could go all the way down to the field uh, and just hang out before the game. Um, so I was down on the field watching the players warm up. Jerry Royce threw a ball to me at one point. You know, I asked him for a ball. He threw it to me. So, I mean, you could get right up there. Uh, on field level. Um, so, yeah, I had uh, – I went to all three games of the World Series in 79. And when they were on the road playing, um, we – I was living in Bard Hall, I think, at the time. Or maybe it was Founders. I think it was in Founders Hall. And there was a Baltimore Orioles fan on our floor. And so when the Baltimore Orioles were up three games to one – this guy was walking around the halls boasting and bragging and everybody wanted to kill him. Um, so then all of a sudden it's three, two and he's getting a little nervous three, three. Now he's really nervous. He locked himself in his room for game seven. And when the pirates, won, <laughs> he would not come out of his room and that dorm went absolutely bonkers. They, I think somebody pulled the alarm. I mean, cause it was just, everybody was going crazy. Uh, and that was all at slippery rocks. <laughs> That was a lot of fun. Oh, it sure was. I, I remember I, I was at, um, oh, what was it called? It was the dorm right across the street, the Riv. I was living at the Oh, Riv, yeah, I remember the Riv. And uh-huh. we had a thing going, uh, a guy named Butch Corpio, who became my roommate junior and senior year. He lived like two doors down, and he was from Pittsburgh, and um, he loved the Pirates more than the Steelers. And wow. he would come over and, you know, we'd watch an inning in our dorm room. Then he'd go back to his. And we got this thing going where like three times in a row where he came over to watch in our room, the Pirates scored. So you know how superstitious sports fans are. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, all right, he came, he went back, whatever. And I just remember 
the whole rib high fiving each other. And I, like you, I think mm-hmm. someone pulled the fire alarm and <laughs> no one cared. It was just like, uh, that was kind of a magical moment. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, and like you said, 79 was, was some kind of year in it. And we talked about this last week on my podcast too. I'm not sure how the penguins did, but they had a fairly good team. Um, and, you know, you going back to, to your high school and Newcastle, I remember Newcastle being a powerhouse back then. And Upper St. Clair was another team that was really, really good. Yep. Um, and, and Penn Hills had really great teams. And at my high school, North Hills, they just couldn't keep up with those guys. I mean, uh, in 1987, in fact, as a matter of fact, um, uh, I don't know if you know um, Jack McCurry, who's the coach at high school for North Hills for 35 years. Um, he's going to be coming on at some point here uh, in the near future. But uh, in 1987, my high school, North Hills, was named number one high school in the country by USA Today. Oh, my uh, gosh. And, and when you when we do this interview, you'll have to go back and listen because the statistics on this team were incredible. His first team defense did not allow a single point all season. They had 11 shutouts in 13 games. I oh mean, my the, gosh. The numbers that when I present these to the coach and remind them, and the numbers are just incredible. I mean, it's just, you don't see that anywhere, the kind of numbers they put up. But, uh, you know, these days North Hills are struggling a little bit, but we'll get around here a little bit to talk about our alma mater, Slippery Rock, because they're doing extremely well. Um, oh my but I haven't, gosh, they are lately. You're right. Yeah. So I have another friend, Chuck, that attended the Pittsburgh Pirates Fantasy Camp we talked about before we came on the air. Something you did in 1991, and this 20 years after the Buccos won the 1971 World Series. So tell our listeners about that experience and whether any of the 71 Pirates were there. And indicate it, uh, you also indicated you won the Cy Old Award for being the, the best pitcher in camp, and you struck out 16 batters? I did. It was hard. My wife, it was a 30th birthday present. You had to be 30 at the time to go. And uh, so I went down there in January of 91 and it was funny. I, I took the train into uh, Amtrak into Pittsburgh from New York. And once we just started sitting around and chatting and everyone had the same thing, I would say, I don't know if there were a hundred people at the camp, I bet 90 of them wore the Clemente Jersey. You know, wow. they, got, they gave you a, a Jersey and we go there, and Bruce Keeson was there, and Tacalvi was there, Sangin was there, Bill Verdon was there, Dave Cash, uh, um, what was his name, Jackson, the lefty reliever. And we just – you got to play baseball. That was all we did. We go there, and they actually did a draft. For the first day, you go out and play a game, and they just ask, you know, who wants to pitch this inning, do whatever. And all the former Pirates have these little notepads. And so they were taking notes on, you know, it'd be like, hey, Aronson, a good bat, can run. You know, I want to pick him. So they have a draft, and the next day they announce, all right, these are the teams. And I don't know, maybe there were six teams of 14, 15 players on each. So we go out and we play games against each other, and you meet these people. And a lot of them were from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And they just had the – we just had the best time talking about, you know, the glory days, 71, mm-hmm. 79, mm-hmm. growing up in Western PA, Clemente. Mm-hmm. And we go out and play this game. And I was a decent pitcher. My best pitch was a knuckle curveball. And a lot of guys can still hit fastballs. You can go to a batting cage and you know dial it up to 80, 85, 90 miles an hour. It throws it fast but flat. And you could time that. Well, guys who haven't played the game for many, many years – 
struggled. So I we played six inning games, which was thankful, and I struck out 16 out of the 18 guys, and we won wow. like three to one. And I said, I bet I can't lift my arm the next day. So unlike, <laughs> you know, the major leaguers, they yeah. iced my arm and everything. I did not pitch the next day. We played two games one day, two games the next day, then two more. And so finally, after two days rest, I pitched again in the semifinals. Our team made it that far. And I struck out 12. And I think I had a two-hit shutout. We won 4 nothing. And they asked, can you pitch the finals, which was the next day. And I said, no, my <laughs> art will not allow that. And it yeah. really didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was so much fun to, to play. What was interesting is the next day, then you play the true fantasy game. You play against the Pirates. So everyone oh, wow. gets at least one at bat. You get mm-hmm. to play the field. So they say, do you want to pitch? I said, well, I have to pitch one inning. You know, and I go out there. And, of course, they my knuckle curveball looked like a fat change up to them <laughs> uh, they were kind and they let me get three outs it took a few yeah. hitters but they let me get three outs when it was my time to bat um al jackson was pitching and i go all right he's a lefty i'm a righty i'm not gonna embarrass myself and they were you know they were being very nice and bill verdon was their manager but he's the guy that managed against our team when we when i struck out 16 guys mm-hmm. And he told me, he says, you know, Chuck, we could call every single one of your pitches. We could tell by the way you put your hand in your glove, a knuckle curve was coming. We still couldn't hit it. And I said, "Uh, why didn't you tell me that? He goes, you know, baseball, they steal signs, they whatever advantage they could have. So when my bat comes and they announce your name and they video it, everything, you know, they give you a tape. It was really special. When they announced my name, Bill Verdon raises his hand, comes out of the dugout to make a pitching change. Oh, no. They take out Al Jackson. Who do you Uh, think they bring in? What right-handed batter would you not want to see from the Pirates? uh, Kent uh, Tocalvi. Kent So they bring Teak in, and he's got this side (laughs) one, and they go, how many warm-ups do you need? None. I don't need any. He drops down and throws a pitch that I swear was behind me. I jump out of the box, and, of course, it's a slider. Perfect pitch, strike, you know, umpire, boom, strike one. And I thought, oh, Chuck, just don't strike out. Just hit the ball. Yeah, he yeah. threw another one. And this one was outside. I didn't jump out of the way. And uh-huh. then he threw one that I hit about a 40 hopper to third base. And mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was Bill Madlock or whoever threw me out. Yeah, but yeah. at least I didn't strike out against him. And I told him later at the dinner, I said, T, how in the world does anyone, any right-hander hit you? He says, well, Chuck, I was a major league pitcher. Mm-hmm. They're major league hitters. Yeah. I make a mistake. I even he says I can make a great pitch, and they're mm-hmm. still going to hit it. So, again, another appreciation of how good they are on that level. I think on my podcast last week, uh, my guest had mentioned that Tacovi's from Pittsburgh. Is he? Hmm. I, think. I don't remember that. I, I don't know that. that. I think I could have sworn that's what he told me. But um, I, was it Al Jackson or Grant Jackson? Grant Jackson. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, Grant Jackson. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was that 71 team. Oh, my gosh. That's my favorite team of all time. I mean, oh. I, I love that team. Uh, and 79, even though they won the World Series, I still go back to 71. And the interesting thing is that Mitch and I were talking last week, uh, and we said I posed the question to him, who would win 
if they were in their prime, if they were playing the year they played, 71 versus 79, who do you think would win that series? And I believe he thought that 71 would probably win because of the pitching. Yeah, I would agree with Clemente. Yeah, and Clemente. Um, And we also talked about Clemente, obviously. um, And I told him, Chuck, I said to this day, I still can't wrap my head around the fact that he's gone. Uh, I mean, I, I remember as clear as day where I was and how I was told when he was killed in that plane crash. I mean, Me too. It was just, did you it cry? Just, probably. I was 12. Um, and I remember coming down and somebody in my house saying it was obviously New Year's Eve. And I came down out of bed, got up that morning. And somebody in my house said, did you hear what happened? I'm like, what are you talking about? What happened? Oh, Roberto Clemente was killed last night. And I'm like, what? And the rest is, I, to this day, still just can't believe it. You know? Yep. I was I was the same way. I heard in my house. I cried for two hours in wow. my room, inconsolable. Mm-hmm. I called up my best friend at the time, mm-hmm. a guy named Todd Jay. Um, he said, we always used to battle who liked Clemente more. And he was, Todd was mm-hmm. a better athlete than I was. Mm-hmm. And he would say, I like him more. And I said, no, I do. And then years later, we would admit, I said, listen, I cried for two hours. Mm-hmm. He goes, I cried for three. I told you I, li- I liked him more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and people that aren't from Pittsburgh just don't understand the enormity of this 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 man. Because um, not only was he a great baseball player, but he was such a fine human being. And that's the worst part of it, that we lost such a great human being. I mean, he's yeah, just at such, such a young age. Uh-huh. Just a great guy. And if he was alive today, be like in his 80s. Crazy to believe that. Yeah, he so, would be. You're right. Wrap your head around that. Um, so refereeing is in your blood, and you've been doing it for 30-plus years, Chuck. Summarize for us what you leave behind as a referee in multiple sports. You know, I was uh, on my way back from that fantasy camp. And I saw an ad to be a baseball player. And I happened to notice the area code is where we live now because we weren't in New York that long. And to fast forward a short story, uh, a long story, I mean, is I tried out for this team and I had a conversation during a game with an umpire. And again, I knew rules. Just like when I was that young kid who saw the clipping, I knew rules and had a conversation with the catcher, with the umpire. And he was defiant that he was right, and I knew he was wrong, but I didn't want to embarrass him. And he kind of got a little snippy with me and said, well, if you think you're so smart, why don't you become an umpire? And the <laughs> very next day in Beth's paper in Newsday was an ad, if you'd like to become an umpire, call this number. And she said, you know, it's a sign. I did, fell in love with it, met so many great people on the high school level, and then there's just a shortage across the country of officials. Um no one really wants to do it. You know, there's a lot of verbal abuse that you receive from the fans. And, you know, they don't want you to make the right call. They want you to make the call that favors their team. And I was fortunate enough to climb the ladder in baseball and met some people. And they kind of quickly told me, hey, you're young. You could run. I do the girls basketball class. You should become a basketball official. And so I did that. And a couple games into that career, someone said, hey, I teach the soccer class. Before I knew it, within two years, I was doing five sports while also being a part-time sports writer at Newsday. And I realized this was my passion. I could kind of set my schedule. Um, and my wife worked days, sports writers work nights. I had different days off. So 
I just kind of <clears throat> fell in love with it. And the more I did, the more I wanted to do. And I've just met so many great people throughout it that I feel just so fortunate. It was my calling in life. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So let's now get to Slippery Rock. Slippery Rock football. For the past several years, they've been a powerhouse in the PSAC. PSAC. And this year, reaching the quarterfinals, NCAA Division II playoffs. I don't lose to Kutztown. The same school that had beaten them in the regular season, and they handed Rock their only two losses all season. Slippery Rock was ranked as high as fourth in the nation at one point. And I'm sure you still follow Slippery Rock football. And if so, your thoughts on their accomplishments the last few years. They've had such great teams. They really have. And Harvard, what's nice is I've stayed in contact with my college roommates since graduation. I mean, we text each other multiple times a week. Uh, could be about the Penguins, Pirates. And then whenever Slippery Rock football starts now, you know, I'm the one who goes out and says, hey, guys, we're 6-0, and we're number nine, you know, we're playing whoever. And I got one roommate living in Sacramento, one's in uh, Durham, and it has brought us together. And I have another one still in Ford City. And I, they said, you know, we were never any good when we were back in college. And I, <laughs> memory serves me right. I think we were 2-7 and seven my yeah. senior year, which would have been the 1977 season graduating in, or 81 season graduating in 82 mm-hmm. and Ricky Porter was part of the equation back then but mm-hmm. we just weren't that talented compared to the other ones and when I was up in New Jersey in September with a bunch of rock people uh, Professor Phil Kennedy I didn't have him in class but he was very good friends with a few of the my good friends from college you know he and I had a chance during this golf outing to chat and he says slippery rock is doing a really good job in the portal and some division one athletes on the offensive side who just they're just not making it at you know the big schools are coming to slippery rock and he goes between quarterback wide receiver and running back we have among the best offensive teams in the country for the last four or five years he goes we are fun to watch play he goes and I'm just so happy for the for the university. So I have not seen them play, but I have really relished in their success yeah. of the last few years. And I, in fact, I was golfing a couple of years ago and they were playing Ferris State. I think that was the year they made it to the final four. And I was golfing with a guy that day whose wife was a Ferris State graduate. The game oh, didn't no turn way. out so well for Slippery Rock, but we had a lot of fun talking about that. Yeah. And you can stream them online. I have it bookmarked on my computer. So I have watched them play a couple of times, only when they got to the playoffs the last few years. Um, and I was all set to watch the quarterfinals this year. And then they, they said, well, you got to pay for a subscription. I said, so much for the, the free streaming. So I didn't want to go right. through the whole schmeal of setting up a payment and all this other stuff. So I didn't get to see the game. But um, when they played Kutztown the second time, I thought, well, you know, it's on their turf. Maybe we can beat them the second time around. Um, unfortunately that wasn't the case. I think it was 24 to 14 final, something like that. Um, the following week I said, I, let me keep following and see how far Kutztown gets at least anyway, from our side of the, the state, uh, Kutztown got crushed the next week. Crushed. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I thought to myself, well, I wonder how Slippery Rock would have done had they beaten Kutztown, whether they had done any better. Um, but yeah, I was watching them all season long. I followed every game to see the final scores and they were just hammering people all year. And they I was had, like, wow, this has got to be the year they're going to go far. Yeah, unfortunately, they had a great offense. 
Great yeah. offense. Did you see the stats for the second touchdown game? No, no, I didn't. We uh, we out we. I think the total yardage advantage. We had like five hundred and twenty yards. They had two hundred and three, but we had five turnovers, including oh, a pick six, wow. and that was the difference. Unfortunate. Well, as you indicated, uh, you're a Steelers fan, Pirates fan, Penguins fan. All three teams have having or having or had an awful year this year so far. Uh, several questions here. Will the Pirates ever contend again, in your opinion, and your opinion of Mike Tomlin? Because he is the hot topic right now um, and the future for Kenny Pickett and also is Sidney Crosby and Vigani Malkin, I can't pronounce his name ever, at the end of their careers? Let's start with the Pirates. Um, I kind of knew in 92 they might never contend again because uh, they just couldn't afford and I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick, funny story about them. I would, if I community where I live, I was at the swimming pool wearing a pirate's t-shirt feet dangling in the water a couple years ago after we'd moved here. And some guy swims up to me and he goes, uh, are you a pirates fan? Hmm. I mean, yeah, I'm from Western Pennsylvania. He goes, do you know the owner? And I said, hmm. no, I don't know the owner. He goes, I do. I'm good friends with them. I said, Oh, you do tell him to spend some money on pitching. <laughs> and my wife kind of gave me that little elbow, like, yeah. And I still joke about it today, but you know, they're that market where that's the downside of revenue sharing is they don't spend. And, you know, I don't know what they have coming in. Obviously mm-hmm. the books are closed, but I can't see them competing. You know, they're going to draft and keep someone for five, six years, and then they're going to flip them before they have to pay them. Um, I wish there were more Andrew McCutcheon stories because he mm-hmm. just warms your heart to watch him play and know what he means Mm -hmm. to the team and the community. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just the way that the game has gone lately, I see Garrett Cole pitching for the Yankees and they could, Pirates could never have afforded him Mm -hmm. the way it goes. And, you know, I, I would like to think that they could eventually compete. Let's face it. They're in the division where they have a chance Mm -hmm. because that's not a big spending division, but I don't see it happening. I'll jump over to the Steelers. Mm -hmm. Um, Unlike Slippery Rock, they have serious offensive issues. I thought it was only the offensive line, but they kind of retooled that a little bit between free agency and, you know, number one draft pick. I don't know what the answer is. It wasn't Matt Canada. Uh, Their offensive scheme, they they have really good skilled players from major college universities, and those players are used to winning and they're just not performing the way we want them to as fans, and obviously the Steelers want them to. I don't know if Tomlin's the answer. He, he, they seem to love him. Uh, my roommates that still live in Pittsburgh say they're not fond of him, but they say everyone loves him. He has cute sayings. You know, he loves splash plays, and, mm-hmm. you know, you ask him a question, and usually when he ends it, he'll say, man, you know, we're in this together, man, and, they say he's a, a wonderful presence in the locker room. I don't know what it needs, a spark. Usually if a major league baseball team is not playing well, they fire the manager, mm-hmm. not the players. Um, maybe Kenny Pickett isn't the answer. I hope mm-hmm. he is. That's a great hometown story. Pitt would love that. Uh, he needs people to block for him. He needs people <clears throat> to run routes and block. And let's face it, Two of their receivers have gotten a lot of flack 
about maybe not being all in on every single play. Mm-hmm. And there's there can't be this me attitude out there. It's got to be we. Mm-hmm. And Najee Harris, I love him, but he can't run the ball if people are getting to him as soon as he's getting the ball. Um, <clears throat> and Sidney Crosby, oh, my gosh, has it been fun to watch his career? I don't yeah. think he's done, but Amazing. let's face it, they, they're very inconsistent. They're better against better teams. Last year, what they they only had to win one of their last three against among the worst teams, and they couldn't do it. But he sure is fun to watch play. And, and Melkin, I feel the same way. You see yeah. them out there, you close your eyes, and you want to remember the way it was. But mm-hmm. the way it is is they're they're an average team at best. And for mm-hmm. some reason, they're not great at home. They're average at home. They're better on the road right now. Yeah, that's sort of like a Garrett Ruth combination. Uh, yes, know, that's that's, that's a, a good equivalent there. Um, so we're going to backtrack again. We're going to go back over the Pirates. Um, you know, like you said, it's just they would groom these players along. They become great players, and then they walk for greener pastures. And it's happened so many times, and that seems to be their history. But '92, I remember that because that was the Sid Bream game. Um, I believe that Sid Bream was the one that scored sure the run it. Yep, yep. And a friend of mine I was working with, um, he was from he was a New Yorker, but he knew I was a diehard Pirates fan. And I'll never forget watching that game. And the moment, I swear, the moment Sid Bream's foot hit that home plate, my phone rang and I knew who it was. And I was like, F you, asshole. <laughs> it was my friend, and he, he wanted to rub it in that the Pirates had lost, and and that was the end of it until 2013 when they and they finally got back, and mostly because of McCutcheon. And that 2013 team, oh, my God, that was such a great team. But here we go. They couldn't keep those, those teams together. And they had that three-year playoff run, and that was it. It was over after that. But all those guys that made up that team were all gone, including McCutcheon would eventually leave. Um, but I'll tell you, for anybody that's never seen it, now, you you probably have seen it, that Johnny Cueto game and that playoff game against the Reds. Yes, magical. I have never, ever in my life seen Pirates fans like that. And you've got to see the video. For anybody out there listening that hasn't seen it, look it up the Johnny, Johnny Cueto game, because they were so tremendously loud. I have never heard anything like that. And, of course, they wow. rattled Cueto. Uh, he actually ended up dropping the ball when he was warming up, ready to just pitch the next pitch. And then, of course, he gave up the home run. But uh, that's one time you will see a perfect example of fans getting inside the head of a baseball player. Yep, they certainly did. I remember watching that, too, is, you know, you the flip side, you talk about that Sid Bream to go back to it. Um, you know, Drabeck was cruising, going to the ninth inning, and my roommate that still lives in Ford City called me up, and he used to call me Carby. He goes, Carby, we're going to the World Series. Come on in. Mm-hmm. We'll get t- we'll get tickets to games one and two, and then Monday night the Steelers are hosting the Bills. You can have my other season ticket. We're going to have a great weekend. So I'm all pumped up about this. You know, going to mm-hmm. leave Long Island, go back to Pittsburgh, going to see two games of the World Series, going to see the Steelers on Monday night football. And then that ninth inning happens. And, and as it was unfolding, my wife was walking down the steps. She had made like brownies or something. And she basically got to the foot of the steps when the hit happened. Mm. Cabrera hit the ball and, and Bream scored. And I'm like, completely lost my appetite. I'm not going to Pittsburgh. <laughs> We're not going to the World Series. I'm not going to Monday Night Football. 
And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I kind of knew. I mean, it, Pirate fans knew then just the economics of the game. It was going to matter time. Drabeck, Bonds, Benilla, mm-hmm. all three would be gone and the mm-hmm. team wouldn't be the same. But mm-hmm. along that note, so happy to hear Jim Leland in the Hall of Fame because, yeah. boy, did he do a wonderful job with those teams. Yeah, he did. And I still to this day think that that was a mistake taking Drabeck out of the game. And when they took him out, I was at home going, what are you taking him out for? He's pitching great. And I think if they had left him in, he would have regrouped and possibly we could have ended up winning that game. But yep, I did too. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um But the thing about it, you mentioned Bobby Benilla, um, I'm sure you know it, but do you realize that guy's still getting paid today from he his is. contract? That's the oh, craziest thing York. I've ever heard. That was hard living in New York at the time and then to have all my friends curse me because we got him from your team. We're paying this guy ridiculous amounts of money. And whoever his agent was to negotiate that deal, mm-hmm. unbelievable. But Bobby Bonilla Day in New York, and, you know, I it was fun in 1991 and 92 when the Pirates were good living in New York and the Mets were not. Yeah. But they would just laugh and laugh and said, how mm-hmm. stupid are we to keep paying this guy a million bucks basically until eternity? And I said, well, yeah. hey, they signed off on it. So that money was more important to them then than it is sure. now. Sure, sure. So with the Steelers, I mean, this has just been such a disappointing season. I mean, at seven and four, we thought, okay, they've beaten Cincinnati. We've finally regrouped and we're on our way. And these last three losses just make you cringe. Um, but I've always tried to defend Mike Tomlin and I'm sorry, Chuck, I'm at, I'm at the end. I just really can't defend him anymore. Um, I I really believe that, you know, he's lost control of this team. I mean, George Pickens, um, you've seen the plays, not blocking, not going after a player that's intercepted a ball and he's not getting any consequences out of it. And Tomlin, he always wants to keep things secret. You know, he'll say, well, that's between me and the player. Um, And he's talking about disciplining George Pickens. There will be something done. Well, we're going to find out today if George Pickens is on that field at the start of the game. Because um, I don't know if you saw the video from Bill Cower about the Steelers culture and everything. I saw it on Twitter yesterday. Um, And he came down hard on the entire team that there is a loss of culture and that there is no – uh, that locker room is a mess and this and that. So um, I just think there there comes a time sometimes in a coach's career where, you know, you've reached the end, uh, you know, you've gone stale. And I think that's where we're at with Tomlin. I think the team needs a change. I, I like Kenny Pickett. I think he's got some skills. And like you said, the offensive line's a mess. Um, so they need to straighten that out. But, to have that lackluster of an offense all season long, uh, something has to give and something has to change. Um, and the fact that they went like 50 something games without putting up 400 yards or more, and they finally had one this season. That used to be a regular thing when, when Ben Roethlisberger is quarterback. And that's not just a credit to Ben. It's a credit to the whole offensive line, the whole offensive team. But that was just not uncommon for Ben to throw 350 plus yards and, multiple touchdowns and you know fans want to see that they do they were never out of a game I remember when you know Le'Veon Bell was in his prime um between him and Brown and Roethlisberger they just had you know the killer bees they kind of 
They could score at any point in, in given one minute, given eight minutes, whatever it was. And what got often overlooked was everyone, you know, looked at the killer bees, but they had a tremendous offensive line. There were a couple years there where they had three all pros between Pouncey, DeCastro, and uh, um, who was the left tackle, Big 78. I can't think of his name now. Oh, but gosh. they were terrific players then. And then when mm-hmm. Bell left, you know, and obviously there was an issue there, but when he went to the Jets, I told my, my best friend in New York, who's a diehard Jets fan, I said, mm-hmm. he's not going to be any good. He goes, sure mm-hmm. he is. I said, he had three old pros. You don't have anyone on the offensive line. And, of course, he did not have a good, mm-hmm. you know, time in New York at all. But it mm-hmm. just shows how important those guys in the trenches are. Mm-hmm. The Steelers during their heyday, the – you know, the steel curtain, whether it's on the offensive line, the defensive line, you kind of got – it starts there. And mm-hmm. I think a little age is showing on the Steelers' defensive line. Mm-hmm. And some of the new guys are trying to rotate in. And, you know, I've never seen a team suffer as many injuries as the Steelers, especially yeah. at the linebacker spot, that mm-hmm. it's you can't overcome that. You know, the, maybe the defensive line are doing a better job than we give them credit for. But the mm-hmm. linebackers, you know, you're you're down to third stringers now, and in the in the NFL, that's really hard to compete when you're at that yeah. level. And, and the defense has been on the field way too much this season, um, you know, because of the lackluster offense. Yep. Um, and, and I've been throwing it out there on Twitter for a week or two now that when all this talk about Tomlin and possibly going in the Roonies. We already know they don't like to fire coaches. We've only had three coaches in, in, in since 1969. Um, so will they fire Mike Tomlin? I doubt it. Um, that's what no, everybody thinks. They won't. Um, so it's, they're going to have to work something out if they want to replace him. But if they do replace him, what I've been suggesting and what I would love to see is Eric Bieniemy, head coach, Byron Leftwich, offensive coordinator. And I'll tell you what, I'll bet you our team would turn around with those two guys. The enemy has been talked about being a head coach for years, and he just doesn't – I don't think he wants to be a head coach, but he likes his offensive coordinator position. But they are, there was talk about Byron Leftwich too, being our offensive coordinator uh, when they do hire a new one. So we'll see what happens. But I think those two guys could definitely turn things around there in Pittsburgh. And, and that's the thing about Steelers fans. We're spoiled. We like winning. So when we're not winning, the fans aren't going to be happy. You know, there's yep, other franchises. Like the New York Yankees. I've yeah. been around them enough. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, look at the Carolina Panthers with two wins. You know, it would suck to be a Carolina Panther fan. And, you know, they haven't had the success we've had. But uh, we're spoiled. We want winners. Um, Unfortunately, when we're not winning, it's going to come down hard on the coaching staff, the team, management, all of that. Exactly. I'm not a big Penguins fan. I I follow them here and there. But, you know, I can only hope that they'll find some success again. Um, So, I want you to name, Chuck, your favorite professional athlete or athletes all time. Roberto Clemente. Easy. Mm-hmm. It's Any like it, it comes down to one. Harvey, mm-hmm. it, my wife jokes, but when she met me, and I've been doing this since I was a kid, you put something in a microwave, it says put it in for 30 seconds. I put it in for 21 seconds. Mm-hmm. I do 21 reps when I work out because of Clemente to this day. Um, when we obviously try to wear the number 21, but at that age, you know, I look back at how much I enjoyed him in playing. I went to the last game ever played at Forbes field 
Um, stupid me as a kid, I did not keep the program. And I always <laughs> kept programs and kept score. Mm-hmm. When they had photo day at Three Rivers, I showed up and the line to Clemente. So he basically had his back to the wall in right field. The line to get his autograph and picture went all the way down the first base line to home plate, crowed around, went into the dugout. Mm -hmm. And they had little stands up and it'd say like 45 minutes from this part, you know, 30 minutes, whatever. And we got there. My dad said, we're we're never going to get there in time. What I didn't know was if you were in line, you got a picture of Clemente. Might not have been with him, but they made a point to do that. And, you know, whether he signed it or his publicist, whatever, signed it. But I didn't do that. So we looked around the field and I looked over at third base and there's Richie Hebner and there's like two people over there. So I thought, all right, I'm going over to third base. And Richie puts his arm around you and says, you know, what's your name, kid? Chuck, all right, smile, picture, sign, you know, whatever. And uh, but I kind of regret that to this day that I didn't stay, wait in that line to you know shake his hand or whatever you used to get you didn't fist bump back then you'd shake a hand sure um, he just had such an impact on everything I did in life and I love to tell stories about not only what a great player he was but his arm you know Mm -hmm. seeing him Mm -hmm. throw a ball from almost the wall on a line Mm -hmm. and people would say who's the best arm you ever saw hands down it's not Jesse Barfield it's not Dwight Evans it's Roberto Clemente. And that, the way that. he played the game with a passion, oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. It's, so, hands yeah. down, number one. Yeah, he's, it's not even close when they talk about an arm because um, I had heard stories that he used to go to not only Forbes Field but Three Rivers and have his uh, back to home plate, and he would have somebody throw the ball off the wall, and then he would turn around and practice throwing to home plate without looking so that in real game time, he didn't even have to think about it. He would just throw a strike to home plate, um, and he wasn't even looking. He knew exactly where to throw it, and his arm was so strong. And I brought this up before that sometimes against uh, opponents, when they would hit a single and the guy would round first base, Clemente would pick the ball up and throw it back to first base behind the guy. And there's been times where he picked the guy off because he took such a wide turn at first, and that ball was there so fast uh, that the guy didn't stand a chance. Yeah. but yeah, I have a. He would have to be at my top of the list too. But I mean, I have so many favorites, and they're all obviously from Pittsburgh. And I've said it before, Chuck, that we were fortunate to grow up in the '70s because that was such a great era to grow up, especially in Pittsburgh. Uh, we had so many great athletes, you know, to idolize, and Willie Stargell, you can mention. I mean, we could sit here all day and talk about how many guys that were on their teams that were great, but. Uh, uh, any other sports you like, Chuck, other than baseball, football, basketball, and uh, hockey? Um, I love golf. I okay. love bowling. You know, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I never played tennis till I moved down here. I covered tennis wow. as a yeah. sports writer, but I never played it. And I moved down here and I met a guy that says, Chuck, none of us ever played tennis. We probably played other sports. Let's start playing. And I've really, for, I guess, three years now, kind of fallen in love with tennis I always loved the bowl. I think if you're from the Midwest, you're all Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Michigan. Sure. You Absolutely. just you like the bowl, especially in the winter mm-hmm. when it's, you know, not that nice to go outside. Yeah. Um and to me any to me a perfect day is I play eighteen holes of golf, I play tennis, I walk with my dog and my wife, 
and then uh, on a weekend play golf and bowl on the same day. To me, that's a perfect Chuck day. It's, it doesn't get any better. And then come home and watch a game. Yeah. Well, a couple of things to bounce off of that. Um, have you ever heard of the McKnight Lanes in North Hills in Pittsburgh? I have not. Okay. On McKnight Road, there used to be a bowling alley there called McKnight Lanes. Uh, the Bill Murray movie um, about bowling. What was the name of that? I can't remember now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That bowling movie, they had a scene filmed in the North Hills in Pittsburgh at McKnight Lanes where I used to go bowling all the time. And my father was okay. on a bowl, bowling team there. Um, so that's my bowling bowling end of things. And then with golf, my up, my neighbor up the street, Dan Polzarski, I graduated from North Hills High School uh, a couple of years after me, but he was an avid golfer and a very, very good golfer. In fact, he wanted to make the PGA. He tried several times, came close, uh, eventually made it on the Canadian golf tour. And so he played for maybe eight years, I think, on the Canadian golf tour. Um, he may be coming on to this podcast, actually, in the near future but um, to talk some golf. But he and I, I think it was 78, I want to say. I can't remember exactly the year, but uh, he suggested going to the U.S. Open at Oakmont Country Club. And I said, well, I've never been to a golf tournament. I said, that might be kind of cool. So we got tickets for the final day. Uh, and I'll tell you, Chuck, to this day, I tell everybody the same story, that that was one of the most exciting events I've ever been to, a sporting event. I had such a blast. It was so much fun. And he knew how to follow golf. So what we did was um, pick a set of golfers and followed them from first hole all the way to 18th and then backtrack and follow the leaders coming in. And I remember it was Jerry Mahaffey uh, and Jerry Pate, I think, in the, in the final that it came down to one stroke, uh, either tie or win. Um, and I, I don't know if it was Pate or Mahaffey, but they had to make the putt to win and miss it. It's a tie and you go to sudden death. And I got down to the 18th grandstand and the place was packed and I couldn't see the final strokes. I was like, oh, man, I can't believe I can't see this. So I look over and the grandstands that there, everybody's sitting in. I said, okay, I'm just going to climb up the side of the grandstands. So I climbed up <laughs> 18, 20 feet off the ground so I could see. And sure enough, the guy misses the putt. You know, everybody goes flying for the first sudden death hole. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to make it because it's just a little bridge that goes across to the first hole they were playing. Um, and so I never got to see the final. But to this day, that was still one of the most enjoyable events, sporting events I've ever been to. It was so much fun. So um, for anybody that doubts golf being exciting, being there, it's not true. It's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, and that – go ahead. Yeah. It certainly is. I, I was fortunate enough a couple times in on Long Island to uh, go watch some events. So we went to Beth Page Black, um, and we had uh, – we my buddy and I followed Tiger Woods during a practice round. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really enjoyable to see what they did. And then we went out to Shinnecock and watched the Open there one year. Mm. That was a lot of fun. And last year, the year, no, I'm sorry, year before, we went down down here to Kiowa Island and watched the first round when Mickelson won. And we mm. were lucky enough to walk around and see him, uh, follow him on day one. And the crowd, like you said, I love the game of golf. And when you watch it on TV, they make it look so easy. Yeah, You know, my wife mm -hmm. always jokes mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. there's just someone – up in the sky and they just drop a ball in front of a camera and, Ooh, it just happens to fall on the green and, Oh, look, it's rolling toward the pin and it's two feet away. And the guy makes the birdie putt. But when you go there to appreciate it, I 
love standing near a tee box and hear the sound when they hit a ball, how explosive it is, and then to get on a green and watch them putt. Um, when I was in Texas as a sports writer, I remember covering the Nabisco Classic one year in San Antonio, and Tom Watson had a great day that day mm-hmm. and surged to the head of the leaderboard. And there was this guy from NPR who was dominating the conversation. And he would be asking all these questions. You could tell he was very good friends with Watson. He'd go, hey, TW, tell us about that four iron you hit, you know, on number six. And I thought, you know, it's hard to get a question in with this guy. And (laughs) long story short is, you know, finally a guy asked me, he says, TW, do you think you're the best putter on the tour right now? And he says, no. You know, I had a really good day today, but there's a lot of good putters. That's why we're all pros. He goes, but if you want to ask me who reads a green better than anyone, that one's easy. Jack mm. Nicholas. He wow. goes, Nicholas never misreads a green. He doesn't always hit the putty once. Mm. Never misreads. And I always remembered that. And of course, where I live now, we have a Jack Nicholas signature course. And I can't read the greens near as well as he did. So there's days I wish I had that ability. But to see the, like you said, to be at a golf event, to see what mm-hmm. it's not just about hitting the ball. It's you know, mm-hmm. looking at the the wind, reading the greens. What club do they select? And I love the camaraderie of a caddy and a player when they walk. If you can get close enough mm-hmm. to hear their conversations and how much work a caddy really does, I just I love the entire game of golf. And you know, there's been a couple movies, Caddyshack, Tin Cup, you know, that kind of embrace the yeah. sport a little bit but i'm glad you got to enjoy and, and see how great that game of golf really is yeah and i'll tell you when you mentioned somebody that doubts how difficult the game is i actually finally got a game a chance to play years ago um and friends of mine took me out play golf first time ever and this is as an adult in my 30s and oh my god chuck that game is extremely difficult to play um, it is all about consistency um, and hitting the ball straight and hitting it where you want it to go. And to stay consistent like that for 18 holes, it's not easy. I played, you know, pick up football and played some baseball, played some softball. and None of them compared to the, what, how difficult the game of golf is when it comes to really, you know, having that skill to be able to be really good at it. Um, so, credit to those professional golfers. So you talked about Nicholas. Here's a question for you. Who's the greatest Snee, uh, uh, Tiger Woods or Nicholas? You know, I mean, I before you get started, Nicholas. before you get started, I always say that I believe Tiger Woods has done more for the game of golf than anybody else. And I can equate him to what Babe Ruth did for baseball. That's how much I believe He's had an impact on golf. I, I I tend to agree with you on that one. It's uh, the he's a lot of the pros that I have a chance to meet said that Tiger Woods changed the game. Um, you know, he was the first one who stepped up and he said, "Whoa, look at it. he's an athlete. He works out. Mm-hmm. He's strong. Mm-hmm. He hit the ball so much farther mm-hmm. than the competition." You know, Nicholas at the time, great golfer, but those guys. No one hit the ball like 30 yards farther off the tee, which, you know, obviously now we have a different iron going in. Um, And I remember 
you said you were in your 30s when you started golfing. Mm -hmm. I was 12. Mm. And I remember my first round of golf I got to play. My dad, my Uncle Tom, my cousin Steve, we go out and play our local Castle Hills in Newcastle. And I would ask him questions, you know, who's the best golfer? And my uncle would say, you know, Gene Saracen was really good. And, you know, they'd come up with, you know, other names and Ben Hogan mm-hmm. and all, you know, you could have that discussion forever. And Sam we Sneed. played our round of golf. And I remember I'm in the car driving home and I'd ask my dad, you know, who do you think was the best golfer? And he really didn't commit to anyone. And I said, well, dad, you know, I'm going to be a pro golfer one day. And this is after <laughs> playing my first round of golf. Yeah. And he says, uh, well, that would be good. Why do you think that? And I said, well, you know, I shot 77 today and I watch golf and they shoot 72, 73. I'm pretty close. And it was the first time I ever played. And then my dad said, well, you're right, son. But the difference is they play 18 holes. You played nine holes. And it was kind of like <laughs> one of those aha moments where yeah. you're like, I, I was so naive. I didn't realize that what they did. And then now to appreciate how good the golfers are. And I've, you know, I wrote many a story about guys who tried to get on the tour and I played with a guy named Roger Salazar in Corpus Christi, and he mm-hmm. tried multiple times. I don't know. I probably played golf with the guy four, five, six times. Mm-hmm. He hits every single shot pure. Like there's no shanks. There's no duffs. Mm-hmm. He says, Chuck, at that level, everyone hits it that well. He goes, I'm a good putter. The difference is they're great putters. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest difference in the game is mm-hmm. putts. He goes, everyone can you know, slice a ball, draw a ball, fade a ball, you know, punch a shot. He goes, but putting, he goes, and how many times have you seen left putts that, you know, hanging over the edge? And it really made me appreciate then what now I know now that I have more time that I can play golf and I see guys. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people in the world that can just hit every shot pure. But man, when it comes to putting, nope. Yeah. And as a professional golfer, you either have to have a sponsor or money because what I exactly. love about golf is that you pay for your own expenses. Uh, and that is part of the problem with my neighbor, Polzarski, is that, you know, he had to pay for all his trips around Canada and everything else. He didn't have a sponsor. So it's difficult. Uh, before we end up closing up the show, um, I know you mentioned the, your Forbes Field program, saving you, you regret saving that program. Um, from the River Stadium, though, I, I do have one little memento, a piece of turf from Look Three at River that. Stadium. <laughs> so that's my one remnant from the Three River Stadium that I was able to hold on to because uh, I've been there so many times. Uh, and the, and the one you. thing about Three River Stadium, I was actually – I was in New York at the time and when they imploded it, and I wanted to go down and watch the implosion. Uh, but it was in the middle of winter. It was like in February. It was too cold, whatever. But I watched it on – replay you know people filmed it being imploded and it kind of struck me in a negative way that people were cheering when that stadium went down because that really wasn't a happy day uh when that stadium went down so did the memories that come from that stadium being there so many times um and while it's nice to have this great new stadium pnc park it's beautiful and everything else that to me i don't know how you feel but that to me that was not a cheering moment People were acting like it was something special and something great to celebrate. Everyone seems to want, you know, the next best thing. And I, I kind of agree with you there, Harv, is I, you know, the memories, and I think we romanticize a little bit about those memories of our youth mm-hmm. 
going to Forbes Field, going to Three Rivers. And yes, the Camden Yards kind of started the, the new ballparks and what they look like and their grass instead of turf. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened to, it took many years before I finally got to go see a game at PNC. Mm-hmm. And when I went inside PNC, I could look around and then I could close my eyes and I could see Forbes Field and mm-hmm. I could see Three Rivers and I could go back, you know, that time machine went back. I have to say, when I went into what at the time was Heinz Field and I closed my eyes, mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. I don't know. To me, I didn't have that same vibe. Like I didn't see Three Rivers. Um, and, you know, I've probably only been to maybe 10 Steeler games in my life. Mm-hmm. But I think that new age stadium that everyone wants, they might want it too quickly because those memories. Could you imagine if they did away with Fenway or Wrigley? what those two cities of Boston and Chicago, Mm -hmm. they would mourn. They would have a Mm -hmm. funeral for the loss of those two stadiums. And I think Mm -hmm. that just rips your heart out if you're a diehard fan. Yeah. I mean, think about Yankee Stadium. They tore down the original Yankee Stadium to build a new one. I mean, come on now. You could probably have renovated that stadium to make it usable. Um, But money talks, you know, and it's all about it does. So that's unfortunate. Well, my tradition on the show, Chuck, is to offer my guest the final word. And so with that, do you have any projects going on in your life right now? And if you're on social media, let us the listeners know that. If, if so, how can they find you? And lastly, any other thoughts you'd like to add? Oh, let's see. Projects going on. Not really, although I will say I'm extremely excited. <coughs> I get to play Pebble Beach for the first time coming up in October, one of my college roommates made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Actually, he made all the roommates an offer we couldn't refuse. He's he's paying for all the golf and all the lodging wow. at Spanish Bay, Spyglass, and Pebble in October. All we have to do is get out there. And we, like I said, I've stayed really close with them, been to both mm-hmm. their weddings. And um, I'm really looking forward to that uh, time. And I'm Got a couple other nice golf trips. I'm going to Kiowa to play the ocean course, and I'm also going to Scottsdale next month to play. I haven't been out there, and I'm excited about it because I'm going to play in the Major League Baseball Umpires Ump Cares tournament, which raises money for great, great charities. Mm-hmm. So I have some fun golf plans ahead for next year, and fingers crossed that it'll all go well. And I'm not really on social media. Um, I stay away from it simply because I was so involved in officiating that I didn't want to open up that window to people. But Harv, I can't tell you what a pleasure this has been talking sports and um, thank you for reconnecting. Like I said, you put a smile on my face and I could close my eyes. We're back at the rock and you and I are on deadline and whether it's for the radio station or for the paper, um, those are great times. So thanks, thanks for that trip down memory lane. Absolutely. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on, Chuck, and a lot of fun. And we will definitely do this again. We'll come up with something else to talk about. Um, maybe we can get some of the, uh, some other people we were associated with back then. We'll do a little roundtable, maybe discussion, something like that. But 
That would be wonderful. Yeah, it's great to see you. So it's been a pleasure having Chuck DeCarbo on Total Sports Recall, and it's simply hard to believe this is the first conversation we've had in 40-plus years. I'm glad we reconnected, and perhaps Chuck will return to the show one day we just discussed. And for Chuck DeCarbo, this is your host, Harv Aronson, wishing everyone a great week ahead. Be sure to check out the Total Sports Recall website at www.totalsportsrecall.com. Search YouTube for Total Sports Recall, and you'll find my show there. And I can be reached on Twitter using my handle, at TSRHarv. 59 or by email at total sports recall at gmail.com using either of those you can also request to be placed on the total sports recall newsletter mailing list until next weekend this is harv aronson for chuck DeCar by wishing everyone well the contents of this podcast do not represent the opinions of others and are solely the opinions of harv aronson based on his experience knowledge and research <laughs>